Let us read the word. Our scriptures this morning is from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Congrats, Wildcats. What a fun game. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for the body of people that you sent your son to redeem, to purchase, bought with the precious blood of Jesus, called out of darkness, called into light, called to honor you and serve you and worship you as we come together here, but also all throughout the week called to help one another follow you, help one another finish well, help one another grow in grace, covenant together for each other's good and for your glory. What a gift your church is to us. Now we want to give you praise for Eliza Jean's birth this week. To Kevin and Audrey Prater, we'll give you praise for a healthy baby, healthy mama, healthy delivery, God, and we pray for them in the days to come and weeks to come as they transition from man to man his own. Give him grace, give him energy, give him sleep, uh, and we pray for her little heart that you would grab her at a very early age. We'll give them discipline and intentionality, wisdom and insight as they seek to disciple Eliza, but ultimately, Lord, we know that you've got to do the work, and so we ask that you would do it, and we ask that you would do it early, and you would keep her. Got to pray for all of our foster families that are either training or, or in the work now, that you would encourage them, that you would give them favor, give them favor with children, give them favor with other family members, give them favor with the court, the city. We want to continue to see a culture of foster and adoption in this church and so we ask you to bless it give them perseverance and encouragement in the work as they do it pray for those in training to persevere and, and be helped by it pray for those pray for the the vessels as they finish their training give them clarity and guidance continue to raise up more in this church god we pray for our various missionary partners I want to pray for the F family in particular as they settle in, God, you would help them to have favor, encourage them, help them to have profitable language work, multiply their hours and their skills. Pray especially for relationships that will be renewed, rekindled, and, and new relationships that you would go before them and be at work, that they may be able to share Christ with them. Pray for our others as well, that they would persevere and endure well and have your joy as they do very, very hard work. Pray for the marriages, that they would be strong, that there would be much repentance, much confession of sin, and like-mindedness, and that ultimately they both would be seeking you, and the relationship would flourish as a result of that. I thank you for your word. 
pray for your help as we turn to a, a challenging passage, a debated passage. Thank you that you've revealed to us your word and that it's clear. We can understand it. Thank you for your spirit who helps us to understand it. Thank you that this word is going to do its work. He promises that. It will accomplish that which you purpose, and so we trust that. Help us not to lean on our own understanding, but to look to you. May this word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word, your word, will endure forever. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of this word, today, really always, too many people belittle this book. Even those who claim the name of Christian. I mean, some of you who've been here for a while may not know that even in this city, most of the churches in this city think this book is filled with error. They deny the inerrancy of scripture. In fact, maybe you're a visitor here. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, as you visit churches, that's really a good first question. Go straight to the guy who preaches weekly and ask him, do you believe the Bible's inerrant? And just listen, see how he responds. If there's any sort of waffling or hesitation or whatever, just, just move on. Because as Christians, as followers of Christ, a really good question to answer is, what did he think about the Bible? What did Jesus think about Scripture, because obviously as followers of Christ, as those who believe Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, we should believe what he believed. And particularly, we should believe what he believed about the Bible. And we're going to see that. If you're new, we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. That's what we do here. Just walk through books of the Bible. And we're in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. It's page 760. And let's consider the law fulfilled, the law upheld, and the law within. So first, the law fulfilled the Holy Spirit through Matthew in verse 17. Let's read it again. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus wants us to know he didn't come to abolish the law, but notice just the fact that he says, do not think that I have come. Jesus is the one who came, right? He came and he came with a mission. And where did he come from? Well, he came from heaven. The son always was. And he came to earth and he wants us to know that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, by which he just means the, the Old Testament. It was a way to summarize. Law and the prophets, that's what we call the Old Testament. And here Jesus is anticipating really a couple of, of objections. One, he's anticipating the objection that he came to abolish it. But also later in this chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, we'll see that he also didn't come merely to repeat what the Old Testament already said. He did not come to abolish. That word abolish... It's used of dismantling and destroying buildings. Matthew later in his gospel is going to use it to talk about the temple being thrown down by the Roman army, torn down. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to dismantle the Old Testament. I didn't come to set it aside. I didn't come to put it away. I didn't come to belittle anything in the Bible. I came to fulfill it. Jesus says, I am for the Bible and the Bible's for me. I came to fulfill it. Well, what does this word fulfill mean? Well, actually, it's really easy to define in Matthew because he uses it some 16 times 
don't want to look at all of them, but just turn with me back to chapter 1. I want to show you from a few verses. Look at Matthew 1, 22. All this took place to, here it is, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Or skip over to chapter 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then he quotes the prophet. Look down at chapter 2, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So you have this event, then you have this statement, and then you have this quotation from the law or the prophets. Let's look at a few more, though. Look at, let's skip over to chapter 4, verse 14. Again, he uses it 16 times. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Should flip over to chapter 8, verse 17. Just do one more. I think you're getting the picture. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Isaiah. See, Matthew clearly wants us to see that what the Old Testament prophesied is fulfilled. It's brought about in Jesus. In him, all the promises come to pass. Is what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. For in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so the Old Testament was not God's final word. The law and the prophets were looking forward to a time of fulfillment through the Messiah. You don't have to turn there, but let me read a little bit later from Matthew 11. And notice the language here, 11:13. Jesus says, all the prophets and the law, Old Testament, prophesied until John. The whole Old Testament, it, it prophesied, it pointed forward until John and, of course, Jesus the time of fulfillment. And so Isaiah and, and Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah and Malachi and the Psalms, they foretold that these things would take place and they are fulfilled. They're filled to the full in and through Jesus, the Messiah. He's saying it all pointed to me. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In me, Jesus says, the Old Testament has reached its destined conclusion. He brings it to completion. As I've said every week, the story of Israel, that's the Old Testament, finds its completion, its fulfillment, its climax in the story of Jesus. Jesus brings the Old Testament to its intended goal, to its fruition. He fills it up and fills it out. He shows what it's all about. He does what it says. He brings to pass what it predicts. He puts into color what was black and white. He brings the substance that the shadow pointed to. That's what the rest of the New Testament teaches as well. Paul says that in Romans 10, chapter 4, that the law finds its, its completion. The law finds its fulfillment, its telos in Christ. Christ is the end of the law, the culmination of the law. Hebrews chapter 10 says the same thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill the Old Testament, to bring about what they pointed to. That's what the word fulfillment means. So first, the law fulfilled. Second, the law upheld. Look at verse 18. For truly... I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Jesus says, truly I say to you. This man, he's telling the truth. This is the highest authority. This is an oath formula. Jesus saying, listen up. And this is the first time Jesus uses this phrase, truly I say to you, but he actually will go on to use it 30 times in this gospel. And it conveys the personal authority of the one who's speaking it. There is no higher authority than Jesus. Jesus says, truly I say to you. He says, you better believe that this word will endure. Every dot of I, every cross of the T, not an iota will pass from the law. An iota, it's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. When Jesus says not a dot will pass away, he means not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law. A dot is the Hebrew yod. It's like our apostrophe in English. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It resembles our comma. It's just a serif. It's just a small projection on letters. It's like, think about the difference in our lowercase n and our lowercase h. It's that little, it's that little thing right there, that little little mark, little stroke. There are some 66,000 yodes in our Bible. Jesus Christ, our Lord, says everyone matters. Not one of these specks will pass. Jesus could not have a higher view of the Bible. Jesus says the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. Here at Southside, we believe in what theologians call verbal plenary inspiration. It's what most Christians have believed throughout history. Verbal meaning the words, like we believe the very words are the words of God. What God says, scripture says. Verbal, plenary, it's the word for fullness. We mean every word is inspired, breathed out by God. Verbal, plenary inspiration. And today we've got to defend this view even in the church, even among Christians. And a lot of times they'll say, uh, your view of the Bible, it's just new. It's a new view. Well, right here, we see that's not true. This is the view of our Lord. Not an iota, all of it. No one had a higher view of the Bible than Jesus. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, scripture cannot be broken. Jesus saying, no word of scripture can be falsified. Not even a stroke of the pen can be annulled, set aside, or proved false. So again, if you're not a member here, let me exhort you to find a church that believes the Bible is authoritative, infallible, and inerrant. In other words, find a, find a Christian church in the sense that follows what Christ says, even about the Bible. Life's just too short to trifle with the word of God. That's what Jesus says. And so when more progressive or liberal Christians who don't believe the scripture don't have a high view of scripture when they're saying it's not fully true when they set it aside they're really calling Jesus Christ a liar there's no other way around it but Jesus doesn't lie to be a follower of Jesus is is to be someone who takes the Bible with the utmost seriousness and so people today want to you know dismiss the hard parts of the Bible or Say, well, that really wasn't said or just want to try to be relevant. No, no, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, none of it can be dismissed. Why? Well, because he knew where it came from. 
This is the word of God. This is the word from God. Remember when he was quoting scripture and his temptation in chapter four, in verse four, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, as he's quoting Deuteronomy, that comes from the mouth of God. That's why he had such a high view. And Paul learned his view of the Bible from Jesus. Paul says that all scriptures breathed out by God. Scripture is the word for writing. What Paul's saying here is it's the writings. It's breathed out by God. It comes from him. Its origin is God. Peter shared the same view of scripture. He learned it from Jesus as well. He said the human authors of scripture spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, humans wrote, absolutely. But they were carried along by the Spirit so that the result is a God-breathed text. This comes straight from Jesus. So to sum up, what does Jesus think about the Bible? And therefore, what should followers of Jesus think about the Bible? Well, Jesus here teaches that it is the absolute, incontrovertible, authoritative word of God without reservation or qualification. Eleven times in the Gospels, Jesus says, have you not read? He points to the book. 30 times he defends his own teaching by saying, it is written. He constantly quotes scripture. We've already seen that. As Kevin DeYoung says about these verses, we would be hard pressed to find a more comprehensive confidence in scripture than Jesus expresses in this passage. The question is, do we agree? Okay, if that's what scripture is, if that's how scripture views it, what should our posture be toward it? Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, because of this, we don't relax even the least of these commandments or teach others to do the same or we'll be rebuked. We will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that as we treat the word of God, so God will treat us. Because you can't separate the word of God from God. It's his word. He's revealed himself through this word. And if we belittle this word, he will belittle us. We'll be called least. It's a warning for us all. But I can't think of a a sterner warning to teachers of the Bible. And there are a lot of teachers, a lot of authors, even in churches and Christian institutions who relax the commandments. They loose the commandments. They belittle the commandments and they say things like well that was then now we know or that part can be dismissed or that part's not original or on and on and on friends that is scary at least it ought to be one of the reasons that you don't have to worry about me compromising God's word for the sake of culture is because I fear God more than I fear the people that make up that culture I don't want to be called least by the Lord Jesus Christ. James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
The posture of Jesus towards the Bible is one of humble submission. See, we, don't, we dare not put ourselves above the clear teaching of Scripture. We don't remove the hard parts that we don't like. We come and there are challenges in the Bible. But when we see a challenge in the Bible, our first assumption is the problem must be here, not here. So let me get to work. Augustine said, if you only believe what you like in the Bible, you really don't believe the Bible. You believe yourself. You've really replaced God with self. No, we don't want that. We don't want to be least. We want to be great, don't we? Don't we all want to be great? And what does Jesus say in this passage is the key to greatness? Whoever does them and teaches the commandments of Scripture will be called great. But hold up, wait a minute. He's talking about the Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets. And then he says, whoever relaxes the Old Testament, and, and there's a lot of Old Testament passages that we don't keep, right? We eat pork, we eat bacon, we eat shrimp, we eat bacon-wrapped shrimp, we, eat, we wear various types of clothes, we, clothing, we, we don't keep the Sabbath, food laws, clean laws, sacrificial system, right? Even Jesus, even in this gospel, he doesn't seem to do that. In chapter 15, he's going to say it's actually what comes out of your mouth, out of your heart, out of your mouth that makes you unclean, not what comes into your mouth that makes you unclean. Well, there's a whole lot of laws in the Old Testament that say exactly that. They say that things that go into you will make you unclean. And then just a few verses later here in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to amp things up. And at times, he's going to contrast his teaching with the teaching of the law of Moses. He's going to say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so what gives? Do we uphold the law or do we not? Well, the first question you've got to answer is, does Jesus mean the Old Testament commandments? When he says here in verse 19, these commandments, whoever relaxes one of these commandments, commentators are divided these commandments might actually point forward to what Jesus is about to say here in verses 21 and following. He might be actually talking about his commandments that he's about to give. That could be right, but I think he's actually still talking about the Old Testament. We, we, he clearly references the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Then in verse 18, he mentions the law again. Then in verse 19, what does it start with? Therefore, maybe your Bible says so. That's connecting verse 19 to verse 18. So that these commandments of verse 19 are connected to verse 18, which is the Old Testament commandment. So I think he is still talking about the Old Testament. Additionally, that little demonstrative pronoun there, these, in Matthew, it never points forward. It always points backward. So that these commandments, I do, in fact, think they are the Old, they are the Old Testament, but as fulfilled. The Old Testament as interpreted and applied in light of Jesus Christ and his coming. He did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, to bring about that which it pointed to. In other words, what he's saying here is this Old Testament, it remains authoritative, relevant to us, interpreted and applied in light of Christ, in light of its fulfillment. And that's what we're going to see the rest of chapter 5. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and that fulfillment Sometimes it involves advance, sometimes it involves addition, sometimes it involves abrogation. None of us here obey the sacrificial system, nor should we. We're not under the old covenant law. We apply it in light of Christ. Here's what one commentator said. To insist on the value of the Old Testament as pointers to Jesus 
does not in itself entail observing them literally as regulations. So what we're going to see, again, the rest of chapter 5 is going to help us here, that Jesus is the sovereign interpreter of the law. He's the new Moses. So we insist on the abiding authority and value of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets, but as pointers. Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament has enduring authority and validity and relevance when seen in light of its fulfillment in him. The authority and relevance of the Old Testament would not wane until God fulfilled every promise in its pages. And again, we're going to see throughout the sermon, the implication then is that the code of conduct for the church is found essentially, essentially in the words of Jesus. The Old Testament is not abolished, not done away with, it's not abandoned, but it must continue to be taught, interpreted, and applied in light of Jesus. And he's going to help us do that for the rest of the gospel. So we look first and foremost to the new Moses, not the old Moses. We heed the law of Moses as it's given to the church in the hands of Christ. Remember the story, we'll, we'll get there later, Matthew chapter 17. And there you have Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. Then you have Jesus. Law and the prophets and Jesus. And what does the voice say that comes from heaven? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the disciples looked and it was only Jesus with them. So we look to Jesus. The new Moses, just like he tells us to, eight times in Matthew chapter 5, he's going to say, but I say to you. And then at the end of the sermon in chapter 7, he's going to say, it's the person who does what I say. It's my word. Chapter 7, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. In chapter 11, he's going to say, come to me. All who are weary and heavenly, learn from me. And then in chapter 24, verse 35 in Matthew, he's going to say, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. And he says, those who will be great are those who do and teach these words. And so we need to learn them and we need to obey them. But not only that, he says, we need to teach it to others. Whoever does them and teaches the commandments will be called great. So this is for all disciples, right? It's how the gospel ends. Great Commission, chapter 28, verse 20. We go, we make disciples, and we teach them all that Jesus commanded. That's why we do discipleship groups that multiply into other D groups. It's how the church has grown historically. We tell people about Jesus. We teach them what he taught. Continue to do the same, starting with those who are under our roofs. It's what we do. We're ruled by God's word. We are disciples who make disciples. So the law fulfilled... The law upheld, and now the law within. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Say, what? What? Come again? We must have a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees? More righteous than the most righteous people of all? Remember the scribes, they were the professional Bible scholars. The Pharisees were the most rigorous sect of Judaism. They were zealously and meticulously committed to outward obedience. 
And Jesus says, our righteousness must exceed theirs. And the ESV actually leaves out one word there. It not only must exceed, it must greatly exceed, greatly surpass. Not just a little, a lot. Seems impossible. Which is why a lot of Protestant interpreters like us actually think that they teach that this verse is talking about imputed righteousness. I mentioned this last week. They say, well, that we can't do that. So really what it's saying is we need that gift righteousness. That when we trust Christ, we're not righteous, Romans 3. We need righteousness, so we trust Christ and God grants us the righteousness of Christ through faith. Yes and amen, that's glorious truth. Paul teaches it all over in Galatians and Romans. It's just not what's being taught here. Remember, Matthew uses that word differently. Matthew uses the word righteousness to talk about our conduct, not gift righteousness that Paul talks about. So Jesus actually means that our righteousness must exceed that of the religious professionals. Jesus is saying, you must be holier than thou, at least when it comes to the scribes and Pharisees. But here's something really important. Jesus is not commanding us to out-Pharisee the Pharisees. No, he's saying we must have a different kind of righteousness altogether. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to help us out. In fact, I think in so many ways, verse 20 is actually the thesis statement of the whole sermon. Now, Jesus is talking about heart righteousness. Jesus is talking about an unhypocritical righteousness, a whole person righteousness, not just behavioral compliance to the rules, not just external conformity. Remember, that was the problem of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. In chapter 15, he quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, yeah, you praise me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Externally, they're saying things, but they don't have hearts for God. The scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites. Jesus calls them that. They would do certain things externally, but they didn't have a heart for God. In chapter 23, Jesus, remember we read this, he's going he's gonna to say, you're like, you, you clean the outside, clean the outside of the cup or the plate, but inside you are full of greed and selfishness. Shiny on the outside, inside dirty. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Again, look pretty on the outside, but what's underneath? What's on the inside? Rotting corpses. And friends, Abilene, Texas, all of Texas, but Abilene in some ways in an even deeper form is filled with Pharisees. It's filled with people who do some, some religious things on the outside, maybe even come to church regularly, but they don't have a heart for God. Their heart is far from God. They may have Pharisee righteousness, but they need heart righteousness. And so the question I would just ask you is, do you have a heart for God? Scribes and Pharisees did a lot of things externally right. They looked really good. Do you have a heart for God? How would you know? Well, first and foremost, do you love him? Do you love him? As we're singing songs about the gospel, is there any type of emotive response? Again, I'm not saying you look any different than this. You can look like this and be thrilled. <laughs> I'm not talking about external stuff. 
But is there emotion in your heart because of the grace of God? Do you love him? Do you love his word? Do you look forward to gathering here? Do you pray? Do you love one another? Do you love fellow church members? Do you delight to see and help others grow in grace? Do you give? Not only sacrificially, it's supposed to hurt a little bit when we give. That's what the word sacrifice means. But do you give joyfully and sacrificially? Are you constantly repenting? Are you fighting sin? And especially sin at the desire level, the heart level. If you say no, flee to Christ. Turn to him. Maybe you've never been saved. Maybe you've never been born again. Maybe you don't actually know him. You can't clean up your act, but you can come to him and he'll do that for you. Jesus comes to bring heart change. This is what really they needed. This is what the scribes and Pharisees needed. This is what the people of Israel needed. This was their problem. They were stiff-necked, the Old Testament calls them. They were hard-hearted. The Old Testament uses this imagery as he's, as he's condemning their idolatry, saying, you are uncircumcised in hearts. A weird image, isn't it? Their hearts were uncircumcised. They had this like layer of fat that made it impossible for them to respond to God. Deuteronomy puts it this way, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. You've got a dull heart. Jeremiah says the same thing, chapter four, verse four. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. They had uncircumcised hearts. Dull hearts, hearts that wouldn't respond. And remember in the Bible, the heart, it's, it's the human life in its totality. It's this comprehensive term for the personality as a whole. It's the seat of our mental faculties. It's way broader than just emotions. The heart is the, the central animating center of all we do. It's our motivational headquarters. It's our causal core. The heart in scripture defines us and directs us. And here we learn that Israel's hearts were hard. Remember, sin is not a, really a behavior problem. It's a heart problem that leads to behavior problems. Behavior management never works. That's why the law could not rescue. We need new hearts and we can't do that work. We're helpless to change our hearts. As Taylor read, Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Or the leopard, his spots? No. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil? No, an Ethiopian's helpless, a leopard is helpless. We're helpless to change our own hearts. We need him to do that. We can change a lot of things. We can change our clothes, we can change our shoes, we can change our friends, we can change our location. But we can't change our hearts. That's what Israel needed. Israel needed inward transformation. 
And only God can do that. But in his grace and his mercy, that's what he promises to do. At the end of Deuteronomy, after laying out all the blessings and the curses of the covenant, Moses basically says, you know, you're going to blow it. You're going to fail. But God won't give up on you. And notice what he promises. This is the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. One of the promises of the prophets is that when Christ comes, when God comes in the person of Jesus, he will effect change at the heart level. I want, you, I want you to hear it from a couple of prophets. Famous Jeremiah 31. I hope you know this passage. We celebrate it every month here, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the old covenant, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Next chapter in Jeremiah 32, we read this, verse 39. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Let me flip over to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 11, verse 19. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He repeats it later in Ezekiel chapter 36. It's the promise of the new covenant, inward transformation. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus comes and then Jesus sends the spirit and he brings these promises to pass in the new covenant at Pentecost. The new covenant that Jesus is coming to bring, it produces a radical, meaning at the root, radix, a radical interiorization. We get new hearts by grace alone. God and God alone can change the hearts. Why are we just saying, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leopard spots and melt the heart of stone, but that's what he does for his people. Find Romans 2, Paul talking about the church where the new Jews, he says a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision 
is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And so because of the grace of the new covenant, our righteousness does exceed. It does greatly exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because ours, it's a heart righteousness. It's a law on the heart righteousness. It's a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh righteousness. It's a circumcised heart righteousness. It's a new covenant righteousness. It's not hypocritical, keeping outward rules righteousness. This is whole person change. And Jesus says only such, only those who are born again, to use other terminology, only those who are regenerate will enter the kingdom of heaven. Mere rule keepers will be excluded. He says in chapter 5, verse 20. Okay, so let's zoom out. This is a challenging passage. Let's zoom out of the trees. Let's try to see the forest here. And let me attempt to paraphrase what I think Jesus is saying to us this morning. Do not think that I came to get rid of the Old Testament. Do not think that I came to unhitch it. I did not come to set the Old Testament aside, but to bring into reality that which they pointed forward to. I'm speaking the truth. The law and the prophets down to the tiniest details is permanent and will never lose its significance. Rather, all that it points forward to will most definitely be fulfilled. Therefore, anyone who dismisses even the smallest part of it as of no significance and teaches others to belittle it will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Those who take them with utmost seriousness will be a true member of the kingdom of God. They'll be great. But don't think that just keeping the rules externally will save you. No, you need a new covenant, law written on the heart righteousness to be a true member of the people of God. As we continue in the gospel, we're gonna see that's what he came to offer. By grace, through faith. So church, let's, let's follow Jesus. Let's be Christians in every sense of that word. Let's follow the king of the kingdom. Let's share the same view of scripture that he shared. It is to be believed. It is to be obeyed. It is to be taught to others. And we're to look to him first and foremost. And we're to have hearts for him. Whole person obedience to the king of kings. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those here who are just churchgoers. They just, they just think Christianity is about being a good person. They're just trying to clean up a little bit. They're just here because that's what you do in Abilene, Texas. I pray for those who have not been born again. Those who may honor you with their lips, but they don't have hearts for you. I pray that they would see their need and come to you maybe for the first time. Maybe they've been in church for years, but they would realize, I don't know the Lord. And you would draw them to yourself. You would regenerate them. You would change the Ethiopian's skin. You would change the leopard spot. You would melt the heart of stone. I pray that for the children in this room, many of whom know a lot about you but maybe they, they have not been born again yet. Would you save them? Open their hearts. Would you produce in them 
Not I'm here because my parents are here, but I love the Lord and he saved me. Hearts on fire for you. Would you raise them up? I got to pray for those of us who do know you. I pray that we would indeed believe you and we would believe what your son says about you and your word. We would have a higher view of scripture. I pray that it would be said of Southside Baptist Church. There's no church in the city of Abilene that has a higher view of God and therefore a higher view of the word of God. Maybe, may we be those who believe it. Would you help us to obey it? And would be faithful in teaching others to do the same. Help us. We need your help. It's all because of grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.